Thanks a lot for being here this evening. My name is Kevin Conover, and I'm your host on Educate for Life Radio. We're broadcasting down here in Southern California on KPraise 1210 AM, and we're also on FM 106.1 in North County. But of course, we're all over the world as well. And that's good news because uh, my guest this evening is uh, from across the pond, uh, as people say. Uh, she's in London and uh, happened to bump into uh, my website and uh, shot an email out. And she is actually doing biblical tours in the British Museum over in London and sharing all the evidence for the truth of the Bible from archaeology and history. Uh, and it's just phenomenal what she's doing. I, I, I was so excited to hear about what she's doing that I asked if she would be willing to be a guest. And uh, Jill, I just want to say thank you for being here. Oh, no, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Ah, so exciting. Um, tell us, how long have you been giving tours in the British Museum? Um, I started doing tours in 2019. Um, I had done a few smaller tours um, just as I was practicing. And then I started, um, as it were, my own business, really just to try and promote it to um, see if I could get um, people to come along to see the evidence. And also in 2019, I had the wonderful opportunity to go to Israel with, um, I don't know if you know, Joel Kramer. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I went on his tour because um, you visit in Israel, you visit a lot of the sites, the archaeological sites, that the artifacts that are on display in the British Museum come from. So it just gives an extra layer of evidence when you've actually been to the archaeological site itself. Yeah, absolutely. I know for me, um, hearing about the archaeology, visiting places, I, it, it just is incredibly, uh, it just increases your confidence just uh, a hundredfold. Yes, it's things like even the topography is accurate. So when you read through the narrative in the Bible, you can see that it's an eyewitness account because the description of the layout of the land and where certain places and things are just lends to first-person eyewitness accounts, which is amazing. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Now, um, you can you tell us a little bit about um, your background before we hop into some of these evidences in the British Museum? Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background as far as were you brought up in a Christian family? I know that um, there has been a decrease in the amount of people that consider themselves Christians over in Britain. Um, and I'm just curious about, you know, how you grew up and, and came to know uh, Christ. Um, I grew up as an atheist, as a very strong atheist, and I love the theory of evolution. Hmm. Um, I had a um, an issue in terms of um, having my son christened which led me to a toddler group in a church, a church, church toddler group, where um, they, they put on um, discussions that, that tried to lead you to asking the, the fundamental questions of, about where does grandma go when she dies? Mm. At those kind of questions. And I went into one of these groups and they asked the question, was Jesus lord lunatic or a liar and we'd been given these workbooks to work through 
And I just threw mine behind me because I said, I'm done. He couldn't be a lunatic and he wasn't a liar. So he can only be the Lord. Wow. And you, you were so astonished that you threw your book? Yes, because there were no other questions to ask. Wow, that's fantastic. Huh, so that just really confronted your atheism right there and you just decided, wow, this is true. Um, it was, it was a little bit more of a journey because I still had to um, meet my sins and accept that they were sins and I needed a savior and that Jesus Christ and what he had done for me on the cross meant that I could go free and have a full relationship with my heavenly father through the shed blood of Christ. And it also led me to change very dramatically. Wow. Um, which wasn't necessarily liked by everybody because um, you change dramatically. And one of the things that I first had to confront was my belief in evolution. Um, and the Lord instantly led me to answers in Genesis. And I was blown away because no one ever tells you the amount of actual evidence there is that Darwin's theory um, just never stands up. It doesn't stand up. And if you go to the Natural History Museum, the Natural History Museum, actually, where I do creation tours, um, destroys the theory of evolution. And Paul Charles Darwin is sat on the <laughs> he sat on the stairs, um, bless him, and he's got nothing to say because <laughs> the museum was created by, it was built by Sir Richard Owen um, to house the creations of God, to showcase the creations of God, and everything's in its kind there. There's no galleries of intermediate fossils. It's a um, fabulous place. I love it. So you're giving tours both in the British Museum and in the Natural History Museum. Yeah. Now, are, are these are these tours endorsed by the actual museums themselves? Or is this something that you do and you invite people to come and then you give the tour? Is this something that you're doing independently or is this something you're doing in, in, with collaboration with the museum? Um, the museums have a little bit of a problem. Um, the British Museum has an enormous amount of biblical artifacts probably in, the most in any museum in the world. Wow. And so they have to write scriptures on the wall because they cannot describe what they've got and put it on display without referencing the Bible, which actually makes my job easier. They also, they sell lots of books because they know um, that Christians go there to see the evidence. So they actually sell tour guides themselves from like Clive Anderson and Brian Edwards they sell day one um, books on the Bible because there's nothing they can do. And actually, even though it's a secular museum, um, oh, they do preach the gospel really well because there's nothing they can do with the evidence. So, now, so yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say the Natural History Museum, it's, it's very different and not many... Um, Christians would even think of going through there, but both of the museums are actually financed by our tax money. So they can't keep us out, or they can't keep me out, and I'm quite polite. They can't keep me out. And actually what's really interesting is I use, I use an iPad and I use videos, and I often 
um, get staff asking me what I'm doing. And then especially the dog that turns into the whale, they just say, oh, it's a very old display. And yet it's actually supposed to be the best evidence for evolution. Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's trouble. Well, um, I love it. I love what you're doing. So do you, how do people respond? Um, you know, you're giving these tours and um, as you're going through the evidence, give us an example of some of the evidences that kind of, uh, for you, you get excited about sharing it um, because you know that the people are going to react well to what they're learning. Is there any that come to your mind that you are kind of your favorite displays to talk about? Um, I approach doing a tour in the British Museum very differently from other tour guides. Other, other tour guides and other biblical tour guides like to talk about the history of the artifact, where it was found, um, and a little bit of how it relates to the Bible, whereas I actually like to champion the word of God. And so I introduce an item, say, um, the Rosetta Stone, which has three different languages on, and the Egyptian hieroglyphs couldn't be understood until um, it was deciphered by using the three languages, knowing the Demotic, um, Egyptian and the Greek, they could then work out the hieroglyphs. And again, I point straight to um, the Tower of Babel dispersion. Because we, we, we follow through with um, the ancient Chinese language, did you? <laughs> so we do look at some of the, uh, I don't know if you've seen this book. Yes. Um, I yeah, I'm familiar with this. So again, when we're talking about the, the, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is true, and we should be finding all sorts of evidence in language, in genetics, in everything. So we get to um, the North American gallery is quite an interesting one because of how the Europeans came over the Bering Strait. And that was um, through an ice bridge during the ice age that followed Noah's flood. Mm. There was a thousand kilometer ice bridge that um, they could walk across to get into North America. And then I use a video presentation from Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson on mm -hmm. um, Y chromosome genetic um, research that takes everyone or it follows the male line through to Noah's three sons just four and a half thousand years ago and he's got peer-reviewed papers so we're using genetics we're using um the scripture and we're matching everything up with the displays in the um in the museum as well so you talk about creation in the british museum you talk oh. about um so share with our listeners um so you you referenced there the Chinese language. I know that um, you can find a lot of the information in Genesis within the Chinese uh, language pictographs, uh, yes. especially from the from the ancient language uh, moving forward. Is that actually in the British Museum also? No. What I do is um, because I use say um, I, I I wear an iPad, so I'll just show you my other iPad. I wear an iPad um, as I go round, and I have. Um, the attendees have a whisperer set. So if I'm playing extra biblical evidence, like videos from Israel or any extra stuff, I display it actually on 
um, the iPad and then I can play it through. Um, so only the people um, can hear the audio, but it adds to the extra it, the extra evidence. So it's extra biblical evidence as we go around as well. Gotcha. Okay. And um, so, so if people want to get more information about what you do, I, I know um, you sent me this beautiful PDF that you've outlined with so much of the evidence inside the British Museum. Um, and you have a website, biblicaltours.co.uk. Are people able to get a copy of that PDF? Um, I'm happy to send it to anyone because um, I've got also a YouTube um, channel which is just biblical tours, one word. It's not money. Um, it's not moneyed, monetized, um, but it is all of the. I filmed the tour that I did with Joel. He gave me permission, and I just filmed him with my my phone. And we go sort of all the places you're not allowed to go. You know the West Bank and going on hikes and and everywhere, and lovely places like Shechem. So you can actually also see on um, my YouTube channel. And I'm happy to send the biblical evidence tour of the British Museum guide is very large because I was asked to put the references in, um, a searchable reference in by a gentleman who recently came on a tour. Um, which I did, which makes it about two over 200 pages long, simply because you can click on the reference, it takes you straight to the biblical passage, because people generally don't know, um, not generally, but a lot of people are not very well versed, especially with the Old Testament. Mm. And um, so it's nice for them to be able to go and see um, the story of Noah. You, you know, read the chapters of Noah so that you understand that it was a global flood that has to have left evidence, which we find in the Natural History Museum. Um, and also Jonah, we have in the in the British Museum, we have the most fabulous evidence for Jonah. Um, well, I was going to ask you about that because you you mentioned in the in, in the email, um, you said that your youngest son was 10 and he saw the Nineveh gallery in the British Museum. And that um, basically gave him unshakable confidence in biblical history in the Bible. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What happened there? Um, do you know a, um, a fabulous gentleman called Dr. J. Smith? Yes, yeah, I know him from his um, work work with uh, uh, Muslims. Yes, he, um, he did tours when he was... Um, speaking at Speaker's Corner, which yeah. he did for 25 years, he would also do tours in trying to take the Muslims, especially the Iranians, into the British Museum to show them the evidence for the Bible. And I was, um, I went on a couple of his tours and then I would advertise people to come on a J. Smith tour and absolutely loved it. And my son, when he was, my youngest son, when he was 10, um, in the Nineveh gallery, there's an, a Nineveh gallery and um, the reliefs that are on the wall. Now, if you imagine, it's the wallpaper that Sennacherib had in his palace. Mm. So it's horrendous scenes of beheading and um, soldiers being paid for the heads that they collect because it's supposed to terrify you on your way to meet the king. Oh, wow. Now, 
this has been blackened by the fire that in the three chapters of the prophet Nahum, he actually predicts that there will be, it will be burnt by fire and then flooded out. So upstairs in the Mesopotamian gallery, we've got the chronicles of Babylon that describe how the, um, the river was, was moved so that it would go in and actually flood the palace, but also that it would be set fire to. And it's, it's very black. It, it's very evident that it was set on fire. And for my 10 year old son, he said, um, I won't be able to remember everything I've seen, but nothing can shake my faith now. And he's, okay. he's now 21 and he's um, evangelizing and loves the Lord along with my other two sons. And really it was when I came to faith and had to, um, find the evidence for myself, creation evidence, archeological evidence, because I was about 35. So I was quite old when I came to faith. Um, I took my three sons, they went to lectures by Stuart Burgess, sort of, they went to all sorts of places that would be um, godly men teaching them as three sons, um, that the Bible is true from Genesis to Revelation. And that has led all of them to a firm foundation in trusting not only in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, but that his word is trustworthy and, and true from first to last word, because we've got so much evidence that just, just backs it up. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's incredible. Um... And so, so how many tours do you give, you know, in a day, in a week, uh, in a month? How, how often do you do this? Um, it's quite difficult, actually, in the UK, um, because <sighs> quite a lot of people don't see the relevance in the, especially the Old Testament being true or trustworthy. So mm. it's actually a lot of the churches. So it's quite difficult to actually find people who want to to take a tour. Um, so I actually work as a care assistant as my like bread and butter money, as it were. And then I do tours when I'm asked to do tours. Um, now, when I am showing people that the, you can trust the Bible in all areas, Sometimes people have actually cherry picked their Bible and only like it a certain way. So they might not actually appreciate their um, way of viewing the Bible, that it can be challenged by actual physical evidence that might go away, go against what they have been taught and what they think themselves. So it's very niche. I'm teaching that the Bible is true. Yes, that's fantastic. We need more people doing that. <laughs> um, well, uh, tell us about, you know, something that's interesting on, on your list of things is King, King Hezekiah's mural. Um, I know about, uh, you know, Hezekiah's tunnel, and I even know about the Sennacherib prism. Uh, tell us, what is King Hezekiah's mural, um, the one found in the palace at Nineveh? Uh, um, we have um, got... Um... I've just got to go down onto my notes. So 
there's a mural. What we have is they found these like giant human headed um, bull type creatures that were protecting um, Nineveh. And in between, underneath their stomach, there is cuneiform writing. And one of them has, um, according to this mural, Sennacherib, um, it describes how um, King Hezekiah paid um, a tribute to tribute money, paid to try to pay Sennacherib off um, with a donation. Um, and then Sennacherib um, goes away because um, his Nineveh is being attacked by uh, the Kushite king Tahaka. And then when he comes back, um, well, what the actual mural, it doesn't say anything other than he came and he went. Now, Sennacherib had conquered 46 other cities of the plains. And in the previous room, there's a very large gallery for um, the city called Lachish, which was like a protective city before you get to um, Jerusalem. It should be the one that holds everyone back before you get there. And that was what um, Lachish was what Sennacherib actually had to make a depiction of. And, and we've got the British Museum has these um, reliefs in great detail. Really, he wanted Jerusalem. And so when he returns and doesn't and doesn't take Jerusalem, um, that's always been a mystery to historians because it doesn't make any sense why after you've taken 46 other cities, why don't you get Jerusalem? You've told them you're coming. You've written on Sennacherib's, um, he's got um, a thing called the Taylor Prism where he has actually written out um, what he's what he's what he's doing, and he says he has got King Hezekiah trapped like a bird in a cage, mm. which is pretty convincing that you're going to take Jerusalem as easy as you've done the other forty six cities. Yeah. Now it's only the Bible that tells us what actually happened. So the reference in the Bible is um, that um, two kings nineteen thirty. Uh, two Kings, 19, Second Kings, 35 to 36. According to the Bible, in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord came down and destroyed 185,000 of Sennacherib's men. Therefore, he had no choice but to return to Assyria, an embarrassment and unable to explain what happened. But these facts aren't fined on the mural, as the murals are, are like bragging accounts. Um, now, mm. the historians, they have a, a dilemma and um, so what they said, and one of them actually, the explanations they give is one of them was actually by the historian Herodotus, is that um, mice ate the weapons. <laughs> so one had one explanation was that there was a very local plague. And on doing the research, there was no plague rats at that time in in Israel. And that the, other, the only other explanation with that mice would be eating because they were using slings and bows and arrows, but that didn't account for the swords, the siege engines and the everything else. But the um, secular 
historians just don't know what to make of it. We only find the truth um, as recorded in the Bible. And when we know how um, the angel of the Lord or the um, um, when Egypt just before, you know, Egypt was um, sorry, Israelites were coming out of Egypt and the final judgment was going to be the death of the plague was going to be the death of the first sons, uh, firstborn sons. We again see um, uh, the similar scenario of God using the same type of actions twice in the Bible. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, I think it's so amazing that more people don't know about these things. And that, like you said, you know, for your son, that's all he needed to see. And he was like, whoa, this is true, right? And um, I, I run into this all the time because I speak quite a bit on the archeology span um, that confirms the Bible also. And uh, it's just astonishing. Um, so one, another one that I thought was really interesting is number 44 you have on here, where you talk about um, the ancient Levant gallery and the archeological evidence from Jericho in Israel. Um, you know, the story of Jericho where the walls fall out and they, that's such a famous Bible story. And there's actual evidence uh, that, you know, this is a real event that actually happened. Can you share a little bit with us about that from um, the evidence in the British British Museum for um, Jericho? Um, again, I'm using things as kind of like signposts. So the section on Jericho, it has a um, a grave cave, if that makes sense. Um, that Kathleen Kenyon, um, who's an archaeologist who actually dug at Jericho. Um, she also excavated this um, this cave that is used there. So I just used that to springboard and show the evidence because I visited Jericho um, with Joel, with Joel Kramer. And so um, we've got pictures from Kenyon's um, Northern Bork and Trench one. We've got photographs of, or I show photographs that I've actually taken of the, the burn destruction layer that you find that wherever Joshua went, if he fired a city, you go down and you find the burn destruction left by Joshua. And the archeologists know that when they go down, like Lakeisha has got one. Um, but again, everything that, so um, the evidence from Kenyon's um, own work shows that the, um, the retaining wall that had on it, um, a another wall that held the, the city in, a red brick wall, that they actually fell to the outside and made a ramp. So just as it says in um, Joshua, they then went up the ramp into the city. And that's exactly what they found. Um, one of the problems is, again, is um, if it's date sensitive. So when Kathleen Kenyon was was actually digging there, you had to actually get permission to dig, probably from the, the um, less favorable people that would want you to find sort of biblical attesting evidence. Sure. But um, the description that um, the um, the people of Jericho, they, they brought in their grain um, because the Israelites were, were having, um, Passover. 
means that we've actually got pictures of the burnt grain. And because God told them not to take anything um, out of there, um, apart from, so um, the Lord called the city accursed. So only the silver gold vessels of brass and iron were to be consecrated to the Lord. And they burnt the city and all that was therein. If it was someone else that was destroying Jericho, they would have taken the grain. And they mm. certainly wouldn't have let them um, bring in their harvest because if you're trying to starve people out, you, you come in the spring, you, you come to siege um, a city when they're just about to run out of food. Yeah, wow. And so I can show the actual evidence of having been there myself and seen it for myself. That's amazing. So um, for those of you listening, my guest today is Jill Baker, and she is a tour guide in the British Museum in London, as well as a tour guide in the Natural, uh, uh, Natural History Museum there um, in uh, Britain. So, so she's giving these tours and showing all the evidence for uh, biblical history. This is biblicaltours.co.uk. Um, you can check that out. She also has a, a huge PDF she can send to you that has photos and descriptions and shows where in the Bible this is. This is a fantastic uh, resource if you want to lead a small group or a Bible study on this, or you even want to speak at a church about it. All kinds of incredible um, evidence here for the truth of the Bible. Um, another one here, this is, I know we're hopping all over the place here, but I think this is interesting. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar's inscribed uh, brick um, showing the evidence that Babylon the, the dates that Daniel describes uh, or that uh, represent Daniel's time in Babylon, um, this is evidence that this really did happen also. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yes, so it, um, there are a couple of galleries. Downstairs, there's the Enlightenment Gallery, which is um, set in the style of when it was first built as a Victorian museum. And they've got a little bit of everything in there. And so they have got um, several of Nebuchadnezzar's bricks because being a, a very proud man, he wrote his name on all the bricks. <laughs> oh, wow. so we, he, didn't he get in trouble for that by God? He got a, he had to go uh, crawling around for a while, uh, I remember. He, he did, and then he writes chapter three, doesn't he? Bless him. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is, it is. And then upstairs in the Mesopotamian gallery, uh, which is one of the most extraordinary galleries because um, another thing that we can do with the evidence in the museum is actually look at the evidence for particular books. So Nebuchadnezzar's Forgotten Dream, you can follow um, sort of the head of gold, which was Nebuchadnezzar. Then you've got the shoulders of um, silver um, um, and chest of silver, which is the Medes and Persians, which is Cyrus, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Great. And then we've also got Alexander the Great following on and then the Romans. And yet it's um, some particular evidence that was found um, in the ziggurat of Ur that proves that Daniel was written at, in the sixth century, not um, at a different time writing back, which is, which is what... A, um, some people try and suggest because they do not like prophecy that Daniel will be able to be speaking hundreds of years in advance. So we can actually show, just like we were talking about King Hezekiah, 
So at the time that King Hezekiah was in Jerusalem, we have Isaiah there. And I show evidence of the Isaiah Buller and the Hezekiah Buller that have been found by archaeologists close to each other in the city of David. So we, we, we know that um, these two people are at the same time. And yet we also, when we get up to um, the Persian gallery and we see the fabulous Cyrus Cylinder, mm. and then we see that um, why did Cyrus let the Jewish people, the Israelites, he gave them permission to anyone to go home um, and to um, rebuild the temple and the city walls and take all of the temple goods that had been stolen or that by Nebuchadnezzar. And we read this in Nehemiah um, and in Ezra 1, because Ezra 1 is, is written uh, by King Cyrus. And if we read Isaiah 45 and 46, Isaiah writes to Cyrus by name. I think it's, I think it's around 124 years beforehand. So we can show that prophecy written by Isaiah, who we can see is downstairs with King Hezekiah in like 701 BC. And then we're upstairs with um, King Cyrus, who's also fulfilling the um, order of Nebuchadnezzar's forgotten dream. And we can see how Isaiah and Daniel work together perfectly in how God brings about um just the majesty of his word just it, it's just um wonderful to see uh, it it gives me goosebumps when you see that just hidden under the ground or we have these wonderful bits of evidence that um prove the bible is it's authentically written by the eyewitnesses at the time which were the prophets the kings the enemies of God um, just confirm it true from Genesis to Revelation. It's it's the most fantastic place. I, I just think that God has purposely um, saved everything in the British Museum. It's like his treasure storehouse. And it's free for people to to go and see for themselves if, if they want to, to go themselves. I love it. Um, so do they... I know a lot of museums rotate, um, you know, different displays and these sorts of things. Does the British Museum, you know, have like a basement that they keep stuff in and then they bring out stuff that hasn't been out for a while? How does that all work? Um, generally, I mean, the basement must be a most fantastic place because it's got so much stuff that never sees the light of day. Yeah. They generally, because of the way the museum is set up, everything stays in place. Unless there is an exhibition going on somewhere, sometimes there'll be an exhibition in the museum itself, um, which are always fabulous because they bring the artifacts from museums across the world and put them on display for you to go and, to go and see. But generally, um, they do close the galleries randomly. Sometimes they might not have enough staff um, to, to be, or sometimes if it's been heavily raining, the roof leaks. Oh no. Oh, <laughs> building. Um, so we have the ability to change route um, on a tour just in case 
a certain gallery uh, is closed. Um, though generally the stuff is is always where it is, generally. Yeah. I was taking a class um, on archaeology and the Bible, and I asked the professor at the time, I said, because he was talking about all these discoveries that have been found and how much stuff has been found and dug up. And I said, uh, how, how much is there that, you know, isn't either read, like people don't read it or what? Because he was saying, you know, there's not a lot of people that can read, for example, cuneiform and, and different old languages. And, and he said, um, he said, we have warehouses full of stuff that nobody has ever been able to really look into. And uh, that just uh, kind of made me sad. I was like, what else is out there that confirms the truth of the Bible? Because uh, we keep finding stuff again and again and again that shows that, for example, like you said, Isaiah is a real historical figure. Um, King David is a real historical figure. And, and uh, so I just think it's so encouraging to hear what you're, what you're sharing. And, um, and just like it affected your faith and affected my faith and your, your kids' faith, I just feel like um, if more people knew about this, you know, they would give the Bible a second thought and say, wait a second, maybe I need to look into this a little further. Um, and it is, it's quite confronting because people have preconceived ideas or they have been told that, oh, this is an allegory or this mm. is a story. But the people who are saying it's an allegory or story need to understand that when there's evidence that disprove them, then they're not being faithful and they will have to give an account. So you really need to have searched everywhere to make sure that there is no evidence that disproves the word of God before you say that something is an allegory. You know, yeah, and I, I think with the, with the Jonah evidence, which um, I found quite amazing and I just love, love taking that is that, um, there um, are a certain, a massive type of carp that uh, I've only seen referenced in the British Museum, a giant carp that was in the Tigris River. And there were these wise men, these Akpalu, who would wear the fish-skinned cloaks. Mm. So the head of the fish is they wear like a mitre, like Dagon, and the fish the back of the fish goes down as a cloak. And in the actual um, museum, it gives a description of these and it says how, um, I'm just trying to find my reference. Um, I've got it. Yeah, I've got it here, uh, number 24 on page 16. Oh, is it, is it, I thought it was on a bit further. Hang on a sec, I'm up in the Mesopotamian. Have I got the, um, hang on a second. Sorry about this. Um, no, it's okay. It does say that, um, yeah, I have gone too far. You're probably right. Um, it does say that wisdom would come from God through uh, people wearing or, or from what appears to be like um, people in from a fish. Now, what happened was, was when the um, Assyrians, when they were conquering, um, different people groups, they would take the people back with them and the people would bring their own gods with them. So, um, yes, yeah, so the fish cloaked sages, in order to protect a household, figures were buried beneath the floor in groups of seven. These examples represent 
Apkalu, or wise men dressed in fish skin cloaks sent by the god Ea to impart knowledge to humans. For cultic purposes, priests wore such cloaks made from a giant species of carp living in the river Tigris. Now, if you go into the Natural History Museum, um, in one of the galleries upstairs, they have a massive fish. And the description for the fish is that in one of the fishes, fossil fishes that they've got, um, it has a four foot fish in it that must have been swallowed whole. Mm. So um, if you had local knowledge of the day of Nineveh of the day, you would see that God had primed Nineveh perfectly. Mm. So when a very angry Jonah was <laughs> thrown up onto the shores of the Tigris River and he was angry and he walked across Nineveh going in 40 days, you are getting judged. They, everyone repented. They put sackcloth on the cows. And if you see how <sighs> the sovereignty of God has pre-primed, for us, it makes no, no sense at all in, in today. We just don't understand it today. But in that time, you can understand why um, um, they were so keen to repent. God Absolutely. That, that, that's, that's so, and context is everything. There's so many things like that in the Bible. People have questions about it. Why would they do this? Why would they do that? You know, all these things. But once you dig into it and you start looking into the context of what was happening at the time, all of a sudden, all the puzzle pieces just come together. I can only imagine, you know, he, Jonah gets, you know, thrown up on the beach by this fish. Maybe there were some people actually fishing there, saw this happen, and were like, we saw him come out of a fish. And they're like following him, right? And you have a bunch of Ninevites following him through through the city as he's telling this. And they're like, yeah, we saw him, you know? And so, uh, like you said, that's God's sovereignty. And that, that's his care for people, too, because... He knows where people are at. And um, I always find that story of Jonah so funny where, where he's like, God, I knew you were a merciful God. That's why I didn't want to tell him. You, I knew you would forgive him. And, and he's like, I wanted you to, you know, strike him down. And God's like, are you kidding? There's over, you know, uh, what did he say? 200,000 people who, uh, who don't know their left hand from their right. Uh, and, and animals too, he even says. And, and yeah. should I not care about them? And uh, that's just the heart of God, you know, so that's so wonderful. And if you think that Jonah, I mean, Jesus references Jonah, you know, when he's describing his own um, death and resurrection, it's on the basis that the only sign you're going to get is Jonah. And if you imagine that Jonah, because it does describe that he dies or it's the description that he gives, when he's been in a fish, for three days, do you not think that stomach acid has bleached him white? He stinks. Yeah. <laughs> he looks like he's been in a fish. The smell itself would, and he's, yeah. he's happy. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he must have been a sight, man. That must have been been a rough uh, rough ride there. But <laughs> I, I'd love to meet him. And and again, this is one of the things that I always think when people. Um, <sighs> are not paying enough attention to the old testament mm. and they are born again believers they're going to meet these people and they need to recognize them they need to know who they are yeah <laughs> um, the old test the old testament is critical it's absolutely critical Christ, um 
you can't really understand the New Testament without the um, Old Testament because no. these guys are constantly referencing the Old Testament. And otherwise, you're like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Why, why does he say these random things? But if you really study the Old Testament, you know that there's so much that's predicted, which validates what happens in the New Testament because it was predicted in the Old Testament. And these guys knew that. And that's what they're referencing. And so all of a sudden, everything makes sense when when you really take the Bible at its word rather than saying, oh, it's just, you know, it's just a self-help book, you know, to to, you know, help us out of a tough time or whatever. It, no, it's it, you know, it does help us and does encourage us. But the reality is it's real history. It's it's truly exciting when you when you see um, I had the privilege of, of going to um, King Ahab's ivory palace which which again according to Micah would be destroyed and has been destroyed but it is just incredible when you're standing there and you read about Jezebel looking out of the window as um, judgment is heading her way and they can recognize King Jehu by his terrible driving and and the topography when you stand at the edge of the palace and you've got Everything falls away and you can see for miles. Mm. Omri chose that site because it would be impenetrable. You could see from a long distance. And it's just, it's you read the scriptures and you see, and then the ivories from the ivory palace, we have in a lot of the museums around the world. We've got them in the, in the, the British Museum itself. So the smallest details are just... Um, just quite amazing to see and we're not scratching the surface it's only about one mm. percent of israel that has actually been um dug up because it's so yeah. difficult to get permits and especially if, if the israel or jerusalem itself that is very yeah. difficult but what an ex the bible the best most exciting adventure you can do is to study from the first word to the last word, and then check out for yourselves in your local museums. It's not just the British Museum, it's the Natural History Museum. We can prove um, that God, um, Jesus said everything was created by him and for him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Mm. And it's a delight to prove him right again and again and again. Oh, well, that's so wonderful. Uh, Jill, I, I really appreciate your ministry and what you're doing. And, and um, you know, if you're listening and this strikes a chord with you and you want to support her and what she's doing, um, you know, this is really missionary work. You know, a lot of times we, we think of missionary work as, you know, being out in uh, a country, you know, that's more uh, primitive or whatever the, the case, maybe a third world country, whatever the case. But uh, mission work is happening all over the world. Um, and this is a... Jill is really a missionary. So if you would like to support her and get in touch with her and uh, uh, encourage her, biblicaltours.co.uk. That's biblicaltours.co.uk. Um, she's also part of the International Association for Creation. And um, and look her up. And if you're in London and you want to get a tour of the museum, this is a, a fantastic person to connect with, um, just her wealth of knowledge and everything she's doing. So Jill, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a real pl pleasure. And I know you're, you're what is it, almost 2 a.m. now over in uh, London? Uh, yeah, 10 to 2. Um, oh, can <laughs> I say that you can take 
photographs of the evidence and then use the same evidence for street preaching. Mm. Because you take the biblical evidence from the museums, you take it into the street and people will stop and stare and they will take photographs because they don't hear this in the churches. And mm. they and when you take evidence to people who say, but there is no evidence and you just need an easel, some photographs and some magnets and an amplifier and you can um, really reach out to the lost with the gospel with proof. I love that. I'm, I'm going to do that. Did you um, do you actually do that? Yes, in Windsor. Wow. And people really respond well, huh? Um, the men, and I, I hate to pick on the men, but the men are very much, they want scientific evidence. So mm. when you start talking about like the James Webb telescope that is mm. finding galaxies where they're not allowed to be because it destroys the Big Bang, yeah. <laughs> or you give evidence for the um, fossil evidence for Lucy and you show um, that a power tool was used to change a chimpanzee hip to be in the shape of a human hip, and that's the only evidence they've got. Men often stand and are in disbelief, especially as I shouldn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know a ton, that's for sure. So... Um... Jill, thank you again. Um, this is a huge pleasure. And uh, hopefully I can make it over there sometime and, and get a tour from you. That'd be a big blessing. I would love that, Kevin. Thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed the show this evening. Uh, uh, we do have some fantastic shows coming up. We have Russ Humphreys, Dr. Russ Humphreys. We're going to be talking about how do they actually date the age of the earth um, with him. Uh, he's, he's got all kinds of incredible scientific evidence that uh, shows that the Bible is accurate when it talks about the age of the earth. We also have coming up um, Don Blythe with At The Well Ministries, who, does, who visits college campuses and shares the gospel and helps people um, change their minds about the issue of abortion. Uh, he's been doing this for a long time and has had incredible um, success and um, all kinds of amazing stories. And then uh, we have Dr. Tim Clary, who's going to be with us talking about the progression of the flood. So how did it start and what happened all the way through up to, to, to and including the Ice Age? So that's going to be really incredible also. He's with the Institute for Creation Research. So some great shows. And uh, I look forward to being with you next time. Um, remember what the Bible says in Philippians, whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, think on these things. You know, it's easy to get discouraged when we look around us and sometimes things look bleak. But God is never out of control. He's not the God of doom and gloom. He's the God of hope, redemption, restoration. And he does it all day long, every day. So I uh, encourage you just to keep your focus on God, despite what's going on around us or maybe the trials that are happening in your life. Thank you again for being with us. And we'll see you again next week.